Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. take a trip through time back to 1912 when the suffragettes were in full force and on March the 1st they smashed shop windows in the west end of London especially around Oxford Street and then later that year on the 27th of November they started attacks on pillar boxes. On the 16th of March Lawrence Oates the ill member of Scott's South Pole expedition leaves the tent saying, I'm just going outside, I may be some time. He is not seen again. On the 19th of March, minimum wage was introduced for miners after a national strike. And on the 14th to the 15th of April, the White Star Liner RMS Titanic strikes an iceberg and sinks on her maiden voyage from the United Kingdom to the United States. In September, the tradition of the Blackpool Illuminations begins, and on the 18th of December, Piltdown Man, thought to be the fossilised remains of a hitherto unknown form of early human, was presented to the Geological Society of London. It is revealed to be a hoax in 1953. There were lots of social unrest in 1912, when many of the European royal families were uncomfortable and revolution threatened their future. In an effort to connect with the people of the country, it was felt a tour would benefit, and it was a tour where the royals reinvented themselves. On June the 28th of 1912, King George V and Queen Mary visited Bristol as part of the tour to open the King Edward VII Memorial Wing of the Royal Infirmary Hospital in the centre of Bristol. And this was the third visit to the city by a reigning monarch within 13 years. The Lord Mayor and Lady Mayoress, as well as other dignitaries, welcomed the King Queen as they stepped from the train on the old Midland platform of Temple Meads. Two addresses were presented to their majesties by the Society of Merchant Ventures and also the University There was a little bit of excitement before the train even turned up 
as a suffragette was discovered hiding and had to be removed. Even though it was July, the weather was not great, but Bristol, even under the cold grey haze of recurrent showers, appeared in a gallant and festive mood. The Western Daily Press said the next day, His Majesty and Queen Mary passed through street after street of elaborate and continuous manifestation of public rejoicing, and the miles festooned with garlands and flowers made a rich and inspiring background to the thousands of citizens who thronged the thoroughfares and welcomed by every sight and sound by their beloved monarch. Word of the week. The word I give you is cryptozoology. Now, do you think you know what that means? Well, actually, it's the search for and study of animals whose existence is unproven, such as the Loch Ness Monster and the Yeti. The royal procession covered six miles, with some 6,000 troops guarding the route, and 800 police from other centres swelled the local force to about 1,380. The North Somerset Yeomanry furnished a royal escort from the station to the infirmary, and the Royal Gloucester Hussars took their place on the return journey. The King inspected the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserves, mounted Guard of Honour on the way and conferred the same honour to 42 veterans of the Crimea and the Indian Mutiny, who were lined up outside the mansion house. The procession wound slowly towards the old council house and was one of the most colourful and distinguished in local history. It went via Bridge Street, Dolphin Street and Wine Street so that more people could watch its progress. The ancient church of St Mary Laporte was encircled with majesty the aldermen, councillors, visiting mayors and leading citizens waited under an elaborate canopy of coloured cloth and real flowers, which was the main feature of the wonderful council house decorations. The king saluted the colours of the fourth Gloucesters before he and his gracious consort stepped from the carriage to receive the corporation address, read by the town clerk E.J. Taylor. Again, the king responded and shook hands with five ex-lord mayors. And then, in brief silence, a red-robed figure knelt, a royal sword touched him lightly on the shoulder, and Sir Frank Wills kissed the hand of the king. Amidst resounding cheers, the procession proceeded on. As the royal carriage passed the Jubilee statue of Queen Victoria on College Green, King George V raised his admiral's cocked hat and Queen Mary bowed very low. In the playing field near the mansion house, 2,500 children formed a living Union Jack and at Clifton College, the head boy, one FN tribe, presented their majesties with yet another loyal address. Back to the city and down Queen's Road to Lower Magdalen Street, the procession passed on. There were more than 3,000 guests at the Royal Infirmary 
and the Western Daily Press devoted ten whole pages the next day to the occasion. Elaborate stands erected in the quadrangle of the new wing were filled with people, while crowds packed the top of Alfred Hill and the entrance to Jamaica Street, and on the levelled lawns stood row upon row of white-clad nurses. While the South Midland Royal Engineers played the national anthem, their majesties were received at the main entrance, where the casualties go in today, by the Duke and Duchess of Beaufort, Sir George White, Lady White, and other dignitaries who were formally presented to their majesties, who then opened the new wing in the entrance hall. The gleaming white walls of the newly opened King Edward VII Memorial Wing at the Bristol Royal Infirmary echoed with the cheers as the royal party stepped out onto the semicircular dais with a canopy of blue velvet fringed with gold and crimson carpeted platform bedecked with white lilies and pink roses. A whole series of presentations were then made to the King and Queen and as the matron Miss Bailey curtsied. The nurses suddenly began to cheer. In a clear voice which never faltered, Mr W. E. Budget read the loyal address from the governing body. He recalled the infirmary's magnificent history up to that present £80,000 extension, and he spoke more truly than he knew when he said that, in certain eventualities, nearly 600 beds could be provided for the War Office, in case of need. The King noted those phrases in his grateful reply. While we join in your hope that no such necessity may ever arise, feel that the nation's thanks are due to those who are thus ready to meet the requirements of our forces, and we are happy to be the patrons of an institution which takes this large and patriotic view of its duties. Book of the Week. I was recently sent a lovely book by Liz Berg called Jewish Folktales in Britain and Ireland. And it contains many stories, even some handed down from the time of Domitian's Jewish slaves that were working in the tin mines of Cornwall, through the tales being told in communities today. And as the author herself says, it is... A book of Jewish memory, tales, songs and jokes of Jews by Jews, told in Britain and Ireland. Jews can tell the same tales all over Britain and adapt them to their landscapes or not. What is important is the story. And the stories are a collection of folklore and fairy tale. So if you want to find something different, then I try this. Okay. Um, News just in, hot off the press. A man has been arrested after following a newspaper delivery van for 10 miles in the centre of Bristol today. When asked by the police officers, he said, I like to keep up the times. Hello, you're listening to Alice on the Backtracker History Show on Bradley Stoke Radio. And as always, I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me 
via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK or alternatively you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk and now I have my first birthday message, which goes out to Sarah Reed in St. George, Bristol. Happy birthday, and I'd just like you to know that you share your birthday with John Lennon. And also a big hello and hope you're well to Sharifa in Bradley Stoke and Bob and Joy, who are listening all the way in Spain. Rain fell and the applause died down, but stopped during the bishop's prayer. His Majesty declared the King Edward VII Memorial Infirmary open in steady, quiet tones and went inside to inspect the building. The two largest wards were named King George and Queen Mary, and the Queen was struck with the children's ward, and at her wish, the King called it Princess Mary Ward. The Queen was supposed to have planted a tree in the Alfred Hill Gardens, but the rain was so bad. So, in stepped the matron, Miss Bailey, who did it for her later in the afternoon. Meanwhile, the troops sprang into salute again, and the people cheered. King George and Queen Mary drove back to Temple Meads, and then home. This particular royal visit was held at very, very short notice and Miss Bailey, the matron at the Royal Infirmary, revealed a side of the picture which was not realised at the time, in an interview with the Press Mirror. The foundation stone was only laid in March the year before, she said, and normally the opening would not have been as early as June the following year, but Sir George White said that the King and Queen were visiting South Wales in the last week in June and jumped at the opportunity, and their majesties accepted. That was why Bristol only learned of the royal visit a little more than a month in advance. So, everything had to be hurried up. It was a great rush, but we managed to get everything in apple pie order, and the king and queen seemed very pleased. The royal visit wasn't the only thing that was happening in 1912. In January, there was a terrific snowstorm in England. Bristolians woke up to find the streets impassable under a white mantle five inches deep. At Kingswood, it was a foot deep. A thousand corporation workmen and 400 unemployed were employed to clear the roads. Up till then, the winter had been extraordinarily mild. In fact, Roses were blooming in the open at Christmas. Also in 1912, a local legend called Old Joe died. No one really knew his real name, but he had the gruesome record of recovering 200 bodies from the floating harbour and saving many folk from drowning. And also in that year, many people flocked to the Wild Animals Congress and White City at the Colosseum because... Everyone was talking about the fierce fight which took place in the cages during the weekend. A great Nubian lion called King Tyrant broke through his bars to the Russian wolf next door and killed it, 
after a struggle which woke up everybody in the district. The audiences cheered Lorenzo, the trainer, who led his assistants into that cage of death in a desperate, vain effort to tear the king of beasts from his prey before it was too late. In 1912, the suffragettes provided endless material for the gossip writers in the pre-war days. A great demonstration against women's suffragettes was held at the Colston Hall in February. Lord Cromer presided, and the chief speaker was Sir Charles Hobhouse, a radical MP for Bristol East. What was really astonishing about that meeting? Well, a suffragette was found locked in the organ loft where she had waited for 24 hours just so she could heckle the entire meeting. No one could find a key, but stewards made a successful raid and removed the lady. During the meeting, Mr Augustine Birrell, the member for Bristol North, confessed that while intellectually he was convinced in favour of women's suffrage, he was not entirely enthusiastic. As Chief Secretary for Ireland, he was more concerned with the burning question of home rule. Mrs Pankhurst, by the way, addressed a stormy meeting at the old YMCA Hall in November. Also in 1912, the great coal deadlock was felt in Bristol, whose collieries were turning out 10,000 tonnes a week. In accordance with the national ballot, Bristol's 2,000 miners came out on March 2nd. They did not work again for a month or more. The food and fuel shortage became more acute, especially among the poor, and the Western Daily Press organised a fund to provide meals for hungry children. The city streets were only half lit because of a fear of a gas shortage. One of the biggest pieces of news of that year was, of course, the Titanic disaster. On Tuesday morning, April 16th, Bristol read with horror that the Titanic, the unsinkable, had struck an iceberg and sunk on her maiden voyage. At first, the appalling truth was not known. It was believed all the passengers had been saved. But gradually, the full facts came through, and late editions of the Western Daily Press passed them on to its readers. The last message in the stop press said only 675 out of 2,220 people on board had been saved. Actually, 1,635 were lost, and 705 passengers and crew reached port alive. And there were local people on the Titanic, but Bristol talked about nothing else all day. Like I said at the beginning, there was unrest. On Tuesday night, June the 11th, some 7,000 transport workers waited for hours outside the offices of the Dockers' Union in Prince Street. At five minutes after midnight, a young man named Ernest Bevin, who in later years would become known as the Dockers' KC, stepped onto a window ledge and commanded silence. Then he read a telegram. Employers absolutely refuse terms. 
General stoppage declared. Stop all transport workers. Newspaper reporters had told Mr Bevan the news an hour and a half before, but he refused to move without official confirmation from headquarters. The men cheered that night, and fortunately, the strike lasted only three days. There was a huge controversy in Hotwells when it was discovered that the springs were undoubtedly radioactive. And at once, aspiring citizens visualised Hotwells beating the Bath Spa at its own game. Bath had noticed its radium some weeks before at naught, but the scare died down. During the winter, Bristol discussed the refusal of the magistrates to licence a proposed £15,000 cinema on the old Union Street, because no more could be allowed in the central part of the city. And lastly, at the Colston Hall, there was the 13th Bristol Musical Festival which included a complete performance of Wagner's The Ring Cycle, presented with an English translation by Frederick Jameson. News just in. Boffins have discovered that crime in multi-storey car parks are wrong on so many different levels. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Zach. It's Josh. Zach, do you enjoy video games, drinking, and attempting to solve the world's problems through ridiculous schemes? Uh, yeah. Do you think others would enjoy that? I mean, I really hope so. So do I. So I think you all should come spend some time with us, the Midwest Meltdown. This show was created by these two fine gentlemen here, myself and Zach, when we spent the last 14 years telling each other funny stories, talking about video games, and literally anything else that comes to mind. We wanted to turn our passion for gaming into something that we could share with everyone. So again, follow us, The Midwest Meltdown, anywhere you can find your podcasts. That's Spotify, Apple Music, Podbean, Google Pods. Check us out. We'd be happy to have Back in the day facts. Now we dust off those history books and find out what happened many moons ago. On the 10th of October in 1854, the social reformer Mary Carpenter opened the first girls' reformatory in the country, in the Red Lodge on Park Row. Also on the 10th, and nicely linked in with our story, in 1903, English suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst founded the Women's Social and Political Union to fight for women's suffrage. On the 11th of October 1967, pop group The Move had to apologise to the British Prime Minister Harold Wilson following a High Court ruling. The band had published a promotional postcard which featured a caricature of Wilson in the nude. Also on the 11th of October in 1982, the Mary Rose, flagship of King Henry VIII's navy, was raised from the bottom of the Solent after 437 years. On the 13th of October, 1941, US singer, songwriter and guitarist 
before Simon was born. Also on the 13th of October in 1988, the British government lost its battle to stop the publication of Spycatcher, the memoirs of former MI5 agent Peter Wright. And lastly, on the 14th of October in 1940, English pop singer Sir Cliff Richard was born. Sir Cliff Richard, OBE, born Harry Roger Webb, is a British singer, musician, performer, actor and philanthropist. He sold more than 250 million records worldwide, making him one of the best-selling music artists of all time. He has total sales of over 21 million just in the UK and is the third top-selling artist in UK singles chart history behind only The Beatles and Elvis Presley. Cliff was born in Lucknow, India, and when he was only eight years old, he moved to England. He began his music career in 1958 on the variety circuit where within a year and only one record he became the headline act and the record he had released well that was move it which is recognized by many as the first genuine british rock and roll record john lennon said before cliff and move it there was nothing the name cliff richard came as well the richard bit is a tribute to little richard and the cliff it sounded like a cliff face, so it suggested rock. He's the only singer to have had a number one single in the UK in five consecutive decades, the 1950s through to the 1990s. And he received a knighthood on October the 25th, 1995, the first pop star to be honoured. And now, my friends, I fear we have come to the end of another show. I hope you enjoyed the story, which had the vocal talents of Bradley Stokes Radio's very own Marcus K.P. and Sandra Hobson, as well as St. Stephen's Drama Group's Molly Jeffries and Joe Wilson. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stokes Radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background... That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>